0: Today on the Beginner Photography Podcast.
1: But then once I'm on a location, I usually hit the street with... It depends on the light. So I'll follow the light if I have some interesting light. Like, uh, if it's an overcast day, I'm gonna have to get closer to people and be more, um, in tune with expressions and gesture because I have nothing in the light that's gonna be exciting. When you have light, harsh light, you're gonna make more exciting photographs no matter what. If you have, uh, overcast condition and you don't have the, the, um, spectacular, dramatic light to, to save you, like harsh shadows and harsh, um, and and uh, light shafts and so forth Then you're going to have to work a little harder Welcome to the Beginner Photography Podcast With Raymond Hatfield The podcast dedicated to helping you grow your photography skills Raymond interviews the world's top photographers in their field To ask questions that will get you taking better photos today Now, with you as always, husband, father, home brewer, L.A. Dodger fan,
0: and Indianapolis wedding photographer, Raymond Hatfield. Welcome, 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 welcome. It is Monday morning, if you're listening to this, the day that it goes out. And today, I am, I'm fired up, I'm excited. And it's not one of those, like, fake excited you know, fired up type things, it's that, it's that this interview is one that uh, I've been asked for by a bunch of people, and, like, it's finally in the bag. I finally found the perfect, uh, uh, I, I feel like I'm trying to, like, build up some suspense, but it's, it's all about street photography. Today's guest, Valerie, has been shooting for 20 plus years, right? And she's been shooting street for a majority of that. And she knows her stuff, right? She knows that street photography isn't just going out and snapping a few photos that were on the street and now technically it's street photography. She has put in the work to master her craft and it shows in her photos. And today I ask a ton of questions that I know are going to help you that, aren't, you know, that don't always have to do with the technical side of photography. That, okay, we're going to get into this interview right now with Valerie Jardine. And she, this, is, this is a great interview that I know you're going to pick up a lot of information on that I picked up even just as a wedding photographer, not trying to do street photography. So without any further ado, let's get into it with Valerie. Today's guest is Valerie Jardin, a street photographer with more than 20 years of experience. A born artist, her bio says, while other kids had posters of rock stars on their walls, I framed photos from my favorite photographers. She's also the host of the popular Hit the Streets podcast. And today, I'm excited to find out what those 20 years have taught her about shooting the streets. Valerie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, it's not 20 years of street photography. It's 20 years of photography well, experience. So, th- there you go. I mean, a lot before. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's kind of one thing that I, I definitely want to get into uh, first. But as I mentioned there in the, in the bio, you said that you had posters uh, from professional or photo frame photos of professional <laughs> photographers on your wall, but you yeah. also say that you weren't really into photography at the time. So, no, not at all. <laughs> I, I want to know uh, when you were – I want to know why those photos were, were drawn to you to put them on your wall, and when did you realize that you were into photography
1: Okay. Yeah. It started really late for me, but growing up in France, you, you have Robert Douaneau and Cartier Bresson as inspiration. You kind of grew up with those pictures anyways. Uh, and I always had. Um, prints, not original prints, unfortunately, but prints of uh, their famous photographs. Whether it was a print that I would cut from a, a calendar that I would have of Duano or something, and that's what that's how I decorated my room. So did they have an influence on me early on, possibly? But I was not into photography at the time. But I loved street photography and documentary photography. So, but I didn't become a photographer till my twenties. So, yeah.
0: Now, you said that you were uh, interested in street photography at the time. Uh, what specifically do you think at a young age drew you to uh, this style of photography?
1: Oh, I think it was just very romantic, you know, the 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 lovers in Paris. And so, and I know a lot of my friends, I mean, I wasn't like an oddball or anything. It was kind of a normal thing as a young French woman to be drawn to that kind of art. Um, and a lot of my friends uh, also have those type of photographs in their, in their home. So um, I guess it's more a cultural thing. Yeah.
0: Right, right, right. So when was it that the photography really uh, uh, stuck with you if you you weren't into photography at such a young age? Well,
1: I was exposed to it. So my dad, when I was growing up, was a pretty avid nature and wildlife photographer, hobbyist. But, you know, nevertheless, I would I, there are many mornings where I'd get up super early to go with him and, and wait for the fox to come out the den to photograph him. I wasn't interested in the photography aspect of it, but I liked the, that hunting part of photography. Um, and it's not until I moved to the States um, in my mid-20s that I actually started um Looking into it. And I was actually first drawn to nature and wildlife because I'm in Minnesota. And the photographer that inspired me when I moved here was, um, uh, Jim Brandenburg, the famous National Geographic wolf, uh, very famous for his wolf photography, uh, Northwoods. And, uh, and that's the photography that just stuck with me at first I said, oh, I'm in, I'm in the best place to do wildlife because we have wolves, we have bears. We have so much wildlife here in Minnesota. And I thought I could do that. Yeah, I could, except then, then I had kids and <laughs> and it's not easy to do wildlife photographies <laughs> with two young kids with you. So uh, I did a little bit, but uh, quickly, quickly shifted gear into other things that I could do with the family in tow uh for my
0: early years as a photographer so in the beginning you you just started pursuing photography once you moved to minnesota purely Mm -hmm. as a hobby kind of to bring that feeling back of, of you and your dad together
1: um well maybe but it quickly i mean within a year actually i i was making money with my photography so it went really really quickly i was uh photographing um children and friends uh, children's of friends you know and um, in the and going through the prairie grass that really natural photo documentary type of portraiture that was very new back then I mean the 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 portraits at the time it was like sitting on a fake log or big crayon at <laughs> JCPenney
0: or you know Walmart. Those big crayons, get me <laughs> you remember <every> time. that? <laughs> oh, I got photos. Yeah, I was there. Yeah.
1: So, um, so then um, having so when I photograph my my friends' children uh, and they put the pictures on their walls, it was it was film, you know, at, at the time, and I would give them, I would. Give them the the, the prints, uh, then people started noticing. It's like, oh, this is really cool. Well, it's a picture of your family, but it it looks like art. Doesn't look like a family picture. And at the time, nobody else did that. So uh, then I started getting a lot of requests from friends of friends, and I said, oh, sure, I can I can charge you for that, okay. and uh, and it worked. So I I worked as a portrait photographer doing that kind of work for for a few years even opened a studio for a while and decided hey, i didn't like to photograph kids in studio because it's like bringing them into a a dentist office or a doctor's (laughs) office and and then um and i i had unlimited patience with my own children but not so much with other people's children that i decided that yeah Doing family portraits and children portraiture was only going to be a, a short-lived thing, <laughs> and I actually converted my studio into a product studio. So I did a lot of product photography and and shifted to the commercial side of photography pretty quickly, doing products, and then uh, and one thing led to another, and I was shooting interiors for big hotels and Mm -hmm. things like that. So I pretty much shot it all, except for fashion. I think I've pretty much tried everything, which I think is awesome because you learn so much. And uh, and you can't say, no, I don't want to do this unless you tried. So I tried a lot of things. I was pretty good at most of it, but I didn't like a lot of it. So I kind of, I only did what I love to do because I really believe that to be good at something, you have to love it. And if it's a chore or a job as an artist, And if it feels like a chore, you're not going to, you're not going to do it with your heart. So, yeah,
0: Yeah, I try to stress that a lot on the podcast as well, especially when you're starting out, you should really try to shoot everything possible because there are photographers out there and I use this as an example, but I know a photographer uh, who kind of, um, I knew when I, when I first started in photography, who only shot clear liquids, like that was his thing. It was only clear liquids. Like, Mm -hmm see-through not not like clear green (laughs) clear (laughs) liquids water vodka like those types of liquids that's all that he did and i thought to myself when i first figured that out or when i when i first learned of him was like how do you even get into that surely you don't like grow up as a kid thinking like gosh i could i could just shoot water and vodka like all day long you know it's one of those things that progresses you you shoot a, a range of things and then suddenly it sticks for you but um I kind of want to go back to your story here. Uh, You said that you picked up a camera there and then within a year you were, you were photographing Mm -hmm. kids and stuff. When you first picked up that camera, were you already um, uh, competent with a camera or did you have to learn? I was in
1: full auto for a long time because, (laughs) and, and yet, you know, that's why um, the vision is so much more important because you can, if you have, if you have, if you know how to see photographically, you can get by with a phone and still do a fantastic work. Whereas if you're very technical, but you have no vision, you can have a technically perfect photograph of a boring of something really boring. So, yeah. uh, so anyone can learn the technical aspect of, a, of photography. That's the easy part. And I always tell my students, you know, don't worry so much about the technical aspect, because that's easy to learn, just learn to see. And and I think some of it is innate. But you can learn. I mean, I've, I've seen some of my students over the years that, uh, that produce some pretty phenomenal work now. And I saw them at their early stages. So uh, you can learn, even if it's not something that you're born with, you can certainly learn to become a better photographer but the technical part is or is the easy part and and surprisingly enough that's what that's what intimidates a lot of people from jumping into that field
0: mm-hmm. sure it's a lot of numbers i mean i get it it yeah. can be intimidating so yeah how did how did you do it was it books was it just, uh, just
1: no try on it? <laughs> trial and error
0: trial and error yeah I love it. I love <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. Okay. So, so we're kind of at this point to where now you have this uh, commercial photography studio, right? In the, uh, was it in the early two thousands? Uh, yeah. Okay. So you had this commercial photography studio, and now today you're 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 very well known for your street photography. Where did the transition happen, and <laughs> what was it that inspired you to to go in that direction? Well, um, I was,
1: I was shooting personal projects throughout. Um, because I really feel that, and I've written a lot about that actually, I really feel that you need to feed your creative soul and, and not work for clients all the time. So especially when you work for clients, that's even more important to just work on personal projects where you don't have to, uh, produce, work for somebody else, uh, you know, and follow somebody else's direction. So it was really important for me to keep shooting. And, and I was traveling back and forth since I was born and raised in France and I'm a French citizen. I was traveling back and forth to France a lot, even with the kids and, uh, uh, actually always with the kids for 17 years, uh, straight. And, uh, so, but I always did photography there and that's when I actually discovered street photography. I started photographing candid scenes of everyday life with my with my camera when I was traveling, but never here in Minneapolis. I didn't think there was anything interesting here. (laughs) I didn't see anything interesting. And so um, and I I guess I developed it not knowing I was developing my street photographer skills uh, over the years. And then uh, one day, actually, someone said, Why don't you teach this? You're really good at it. I'm like, Oh, I don't know. I don't really want to teach it. I was thinking teaching like in a classroom. It's like, I know, I mean, you have to be on the street. And then and then I thought, Well, why not? After all, I could bring people to Paris and, and teach them the skills to be better photographers on the streets where street photography was born. And so that's how I started. So that was eight years ago. I I did one full, and it was all-inclusive at the time. I didn't start with one day here locally. I started with a full week, all-inclusive workshop accommodations and luxury accommodations and everything. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and uh, it sold. At the time where most of my colleagues who had been doing that for a while were telling me, no, 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 we're not selling right now. It's not selling. Don't start now because you're going to get discouraged if it doesn't fill up. It filled up. Actually, I had... A bunch of people on the waiting list. So it was a good start. And so I went to Paris, did the one uh, week workshop was a big success and learned a lot. So the following year, I had nine workshops, and they all sold. So um, and that was it that year, I quit all my clients, I I left all my commercial clients. um, And decided this is what I'm going to do. And uh, no more working for clients, no more compromising. I'm shooting just for me and going to build my brand that way. So I uh, and it was word of mouth and repeat customers and word of mouth. And uh, now I'm eight years later. I, I think I had 13 workshops in 2018. I think I have 11 right now for sale in 2019. A lot of them are sold out. And then um, and I may add one or two. Um, I just go where I want to go. Yeah. And then people, people come and meet me in Paris from Australia or South Africa or England for a week or a weekend. Sometimes it's just a weekend. I have a lot of weekends in the U.S. And I love every minute of it because that is not an easy way to make a living. It's really, really hard. I mean, you it's intense. Sometimes I have nine straight days of workshop. and. And not only you have to love to teach, um, you you wear a lot of hats when you're doing workshops, and uh, it's extremely difficult. And you really have to love it. It's kind of like wedding photography. You have to love it, or you're gonna be miserable. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you gotta have the right uh, intentions for sure. Uh, yeah.
1: So, uh, so that's that's how it started, and, um, and I'm still doing it. Love, love it, love it. I would never do it if I didn't love it sure. as much as I do. And then uh, I write books. I've been podcasting for four and a half years, almost five years now, um, and I speak at conferences and. Teach webinars, and so it's all photography goodness. Yeah,
0: (laughs) if you had to take a a, a, just a ballpark guess, how many people do you think uh, have been through your workshops?
1: Oh, it's got to be close to a thousand.
0: Okay, so out of those thousand people, what do you think is the biggest misconception they have when they show up to your workshops about street photography?
1: Oh, a lot of people don't realize how difficult it is. And how addicting it is. (laughs) A lot of people, and the way the workshop is designed, it doesn't matter what your level is. It's really about seeing. Uh, So they have to come with a certain knowledge of their camera to be able to take control. I mean, if it's minor, I can, you know, they don't have to come and know how to shoot panning on the street. That I'll teach in the field. It's not something you can learn from a book. But um, they have to have good knowledge of the camera. Although a lot of time people come with a brand new camera, although I tell them, please don't bring a brand Uh, new camera on the workshop. Know how to use it. It has to become an extension of you. Um, And uh, and the the idea sometimes the idea that uh, street photography means being in people's faces when it does not. That's one way to do it. But it's not for everyone. And I totally discourage people who don't feel comfortable getting super close on people's face to do it because they're going to ruin the whole Genre for everybody else. <laughs> if everybody does that, so it's not for everyone. Some people prefer an interaction with their subject. Some people prefer a little more minimalist approach. So I think there is a way to approach it that's going to fit the the student's personality to start, and then then yes, they will get, want to get closer. They will want to try new things. And uh, but they don't have to jump into being in people's faces right away because uh, that has to be done well and respectfully. And it's usually uh, not something you want to do if you don't feel comfortable doing.
0: Right. So. Right. So if there's, like you said, kind of several different um, types of street photography that you could practice getting up close in somebody's face or taking a much more candid uh, approach. What would you say overall, though, is the job description of a street photographer?
1: Um, well, it's really recording everyday life. And and it's not just... There's also the misconception of, well, it's just people walking across the street. Well, <laughs> no, it's not. You have to be really um, discerning. You have to be extremely discerning. And that's one thing that most street photographers, at first, are not discerning. It's like, okay, there's somebody moving. There's a street... There's a subject. Like, and... You know, it's like, well, what was interesting about that person? I mean, no offense, but there is nothing there. You know, it's a boring subject, wearing boring clothes and a boring with a boring backdrop. I mean, you have to have a lot of elements come together. That's why it's so difficult because you only have control over your vision and your gear. You have control over nothing that's happening on the street. I never stage anything. I mean, it's always 100% candid. Um, I I do... um, um, I, sometimes, and I always explain to my students, you know, you, you, you always have to go for a story first. The the, the backdrop may not be the best. The light may not be the best, but if you have a beautiful moment, a beautiful story, you have something. If you have a great background and you ruin it with a boring subject, you have nothing. So sometimes all the, all the elements will come together, but that happens a few times in a lifetime of a photographer. So, um, I think it's always resetting their expectations, especially if they've they they've been photograph they've been uh, doing other genres of photography such as landscape where they actually can take their time they have on a, they're on a tripod they they can come back here you have a fraction of a second to immor- immortalize something that's never happened and will never happen again that's it that's all you have so you have to move really really quickly you have to think quickly. And, um, and you have to let go of the notion of perfection, uh, which is difficult for a lot of photographers who've done other, who've, who've, um, are experiencing other genres of photography. It's that notion of perfection because in street photography, it's usually the imperfection that creates an emotional response.
0: Remember, mastering photography settings is a journey, and this guide is your first step and the perfect resource to guide you towards finding the right settings for your style. So grab your copy today at perfectcamerasettings.com and start your journey to better photos. Wow, that's going to be a memorable quote from this episode right there. That was okay, good. good. <laughs> that was good. Uh, so I'm still trying to um, kind of grasp, kind of wrap my head. Excuse me. Kind of wrap my head around street photography a little bit as as a wedding photographer and somebody who doesn't uh, shoot street. Uh, can you walk me through how you go about shooting street? You said that you don't you don't you don't plan anything out. You don't you don't uh, create anything. You don't interact with it. So. When you decide to go out, do you walk out of the house with a specific photo in mind? Or is it all up to just being in the right place at the right time and hoping that you get something? And if you don't, well, at least you weren't behind a desk all day.
1: That's right. No, actually. So first, um, if you have a specific picture in mind, that's somebody else's shot. So it's not yours. That's you would. If you have a specific image in mind that you've seen. Only something you've seen, then it's not yours. And so I try not to. Um, but then once I'm on a location, I usually hit the street with. It depends on the light, so I'll follow the light if I have some interesting light, like uh, um, a lot of light and shadows. So that will probably be what I'm going to follow first. If it's an overcast day, I'm gonna have to get closer to people and 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 be more um, in tune with expressions and gesture, because I have nothing in the light that's gonna be exciting. So it's a little more difficult. If When you have light, harsh light, you're gonna make more exciting photographs no matter what. It's easier then. if you have a uh, overcast condition and you don't have the the um, spectacular dramatic light to to save you like harsh shadows and harsh um, and and uh, light shafts and so forth. Then you're gonna have to work a little harder. Um, so. I like to be surprised. That said, I do have several projects that I always have in the back of my mind. I have a project about street dogs. I have a project about uh, stories of hands, which is only getting close to people's hands. So I'm always looking for hands that are doing something different. You know, I, I shoot within inches from people. So if I'm at a market or a busy area, I'll focus on that because I'm more of a minimalist photographer. So if it's crowded, I'll probably focus on something specific um, and work on a project. But I, I don't go with a picture in mind. But once I'm at a location, for example, I find this really amazing shaft of light. And and I know I only have minutes because that light is going to disappear. Then I will visualize what would make the strongest possible shot. <clears throat> and it may or may not happen, but I'm not going to settle. If the the perfect subject doesn't come through that light before that light disappears, I'm not going to get the shot. I prefer not get the shot that get a mediocre shot. And, and that's something that takes a long time to discipline yourself to do. Um, a lot of time there's this amazing backdrop. And then I see my students, you know, I point out the backdrop and I'll see them. I'll see usually work with them one on one or two of them at a time when we're in a, 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 a interesting area, and I go back and forth to them and point things out, and they see this amazing backdrop, and and then they grab a picture, and I said, wait, what did you take a picture of? So said, well, yeah, look, there was somebody came through. I'm like, okay, this is a person with uninteresting clothes, with a backpack, you know, which creates kind of a, not a very uh, elegant subject and, and really nothing. The light is, if the light hits their face, it doesn't hit the face, it'll hit the back of their head or something. So it's like, it's the light was good. The background is good but you settle for an, an interesting subject. I so said, no, you stay longer. You have 10 more minutes of that light here. In 10 minutes, somebody much better, much more fitting for that environment may come through. If you're in Paris or Rome, you're not going to photograph a tourist, right? You're going to photograph somebody who belongs in that spot. So it's really about being discerning. That's why your rate of success is so low. But um, but I prefer coming home with you know 10 pictures on my card that actually 10 pictures that i want to look at then 500 and then trash 490 of them because that's pretty much what it's going to be on a on a on a good day if you come back with one picture you actually want to keep that's really good and people have have um have to uh be comfortable with that. And that's difficult for photographers. I mean, some of my colleagues actually ask their students to delete ninety to take one hundred pictures and delete ninety-nine of them. And 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 be that specific. It's is a good exercise, actually. So
0: wow. So like wait until you get home to delete those ninety-nine photos? To pick the <laughs> I one? I guess or so. Like... I don't
1: know. I don't ask my students <laughs> to do that, but uh, I I I tell them, you know, there is nothing, if there is nothing there just delete. Yeah. You didn't you didn't you didn't catch the moment and sometimes they say but oh I saw something I saw something I said good that's half the work right there you didn't catch it that's okay you learn because you saw it and that's more than 99% of the people out there can say because people look but they don't see and when you see that special moment that special gesture that special expression in somebody's face the light that just hits the the, the face of a beautiful woman sitting at a cafe if you see that even if you don't capture it and it, but you saw it that's you learned something and and no matter what you're better equipped at catching it the next time something like that happens it's never big it's never going to be that moment but there will be other moments with that with a similar um, situation and just learning what you could have done better that day to get it will teach you how to get it next time.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Practice makes perfect. That's what they say. That's you know? right. So it, at least better. At least <laughs> better. And, and at the end of the day, that's all that matters. That's all that matters.
1: That's right. And, and it's okay, you know, to come back empty. I think it's better to come back empty, but knowing that you learned something, you saw something that you missed, or either come back with a bunch of mediocre shots.
0: Right. So it sounds like there is a lot of downtime when you go out to to shoot street <laughs> photos. Um, yeah. When you go out, are, is the first thing that you're looking for, like you mentioned, is it the light and then just waiting for something to happen in front of you? <laughs> Hey, Raymond here, and we will get back to today's interview in just a moment. But first, did you know that shooting a manual is the choice of professional photographers all over the world for one reason? It gives them full control of their camera so that they can capture the image that they visualize in their head. But how do you know which settings for you to use and when? Well, let me help you out with my free ebook, Picture Perfect Camera Settings, that you can grab for yourself over at PerfectCameraSettings.com. In it, I share images that I've shot over the years with real camera settings and the info on knowing which setting is the most important to change in which situations so that you can be on your way to learning manual mode too. More than 3,000 photographers just like you have downloaded it already, so grab your copy today at perfectcamerasettings.com. Now, let's get back to today's interview.
1: Not necessarily, I'll follow the light, but you have to be patient. And if you keep moving, 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 um, it's probably not going to be a good day depending on the city for example new york city you have to let people come to you more because there's always something happening in new york uh, same in paris actually depending on the season um, it, but if um if it's quieter then you'll walk more uh, but you need to always be in tune what's happening around you i, I always say it'd be really difficult to uh, pickpocket a street photographer because <laughs> seriously we have eyes behind our head
0: <laughs> now are you always and, yeah. are you always on the move are you walking within like you know a few hundred feet or so or are you standing no still i'll go just... for miles
1: no I'll, I'll walk miles and miles and miles a day um the most important piece of gear for a street photographer are shoes i mean honestly i spend more money on shoes and and good shoes not girly shoes you know <laughs> street shoes uh than i do on gear on any given year because that's really the most important part the the comfort of being able to walk you know 10-15 miles a day uh with your camera so go light small camera if you can i mean go with whatever you you have but um just don't don't bring extra lenses or extra gear just extra batteries and you're good to go yeah
0: when do you know when to call it quits
1: (laughs) Oh, I never do. I never put the camera in the bag. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, okay. L- l- let, me, let me reframe the question. <laughs> How do you know when to uh, oh. when you've been in a location, nothing is happening? Do you, do, you, do you wait until something happens? Or at what point do you say, you know what, I'm calling it a day? There are two ways to bring home more money with your photography business. You either get more clients or you spend less of the money that you make. Cloudspot Studio helps you keep more of what you earn. With the lowest payment processing fees in the industry, the average photographer will save $300 annually. And that's just more money to invest in essential gear, like a new flash or a sweet camera bag. You know, one that is perfect for storing all of the wedding day snacks that you can pack. But it's not just about savings. CloudSpot Studio is designed to streamline your workflow. Easily organize shoots, send contracts, questionnaires, invoices. And you're really going to enjoy the hassle-free payments. So sign up for a free CloudSpot account at DeliverPhotos.com and... As a bonus, you're going to get access to my exclusive wedding and portrait contracts and questionnaires at no additional cost. Why let fees chip away at your profits? Empower your photo journey with Cloudspot and watch your business soar.
1: Um it it all depends. I mean, sometimes, of course, if it's on workshop, you know, they that's um that's different. I'm, I'm more talking about when I'm on my own. Yes. Um, if I if I just have ten minutes before I meet a friend, I'm going to make use of those ten minutes. Um, I'm never. I never. If I'm at the airport between flights, I'll have my camera out. Um, so it all depends how much time I have. If the spot is is so amazing, and I know I'm not. Going to have an opportunity to come back. I have unlimited patience, and I'm not a patient person. (laughs) I'm French, and and like I'm not patient. I'm not a patient driver, for example. I I drive with flashing my brights all the time, uh, which Americans don't like. No, really, French. Yeah,
0: we don't handle criticism very well, and that's that's what the brights do.
1: But in uh, on the street, I I could if I find a great spot and I'm determined. To not settle, and I'm, I'm not going to press the shutter unless the right, the, the best possible case scenario happens, then I, I could be there for an hour at that street corner or until somebody, security tells me to leave. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How often does that happen?
1: Uh, it all depends. It happens more in the U.S. cities than anywhere else. And it's not because of the photography. It's not because we're photographing people. It's because of the buildings. I see. Uh, yeah. Like in, the, in Minneapolis, we have a skyway system and uh, security doesn't want you to photograph the structure. And so they tell you to leave. But I usually wait till they come a second time. By then, hopefully, I have my shot. <laughs>
0: wait for the second time. But I guess that kind of brings up some questions about legalities uh, in, in dealing with, with, with street photos. I'm sure that that's something that you have to deal with when taking photos of of strangers or, or, or locations. But I've heard conflicting, like, well, if you're in a public place, anything goes. Can you kind yeah. of walk me through uh, some of the legalities that you have to deal with?
1: Uh, yeah, well... <laughs> It, it all depends on the country, but even people have really misconception of what, you know, the privacy laws are all about. And uh, I I use the same approach anywhere, whether I'm in Australia, in the US, in France, you know, in Italy, it doesn't matter. I, I'm respectful. I don't photograph people in embarrassing or vulnerable situations and or in situations of ridicule. Usually I'm invisible and... Um, And in most places, even with strict, so quote, unquote, strict privacy laws, which are very gray to start with, they would have to prove that you're doing damage to them, you know, to even have a case. Um, And so in the U.S., uh, any public place is fine. You don't have a copyright on your face. That said, you cannot photograph somebody in their backyard. That would be um, that Quite that an invasion of privacy. Yeah. Uh, but even then, you know, there was this photographer in New York that was uh, just across the street from a building that was all glass. And he was photographing mm-hmm. people in their homes. And they they took him to court or her. I don't remember. That was a few years ago. And they lost. I mean, the, the, wow. the law sided with the photographer because they were not really recognizable. I mean, yes, they were in their private homes walking through their, their apartments, but um, there was no harm done. So,
0: so when do, when does something like this come up? Does it come up when you're taking the photo, or does it come up when you try to make money off of the photo?
1: Well, I I only photo, photograph for um, fine art and editorial, so uh, I don't I don't sell products with my photos. So. Of course, if you were to use your street photography as stock photography to, you know, to use the people like you can use a photograph of somebody walking down the street um, to sell insurance on a billboard, for example, then you would definitely need not only a release from the from from the the subject, but also uh, usually um, a witness or two, so it's pretty complicated. Street photographers shoot for themselves um, and fine art. So normally, for those two, uh, editorial and fine art, you you don't need a release from people. Um, and seriously, no one objects if you do it right and do it respectfully. Even if someone notices notices that you took a picture and comes to you, just explain what you're doing. I'm documenting life everyday life and it's so beautiful everyday life on the streets of New York or Paris you're not doing anything wrong you're actually doing you have to take your job as a street photographer seriously because look at the look at the photographs of of some of the masters even you know Vivian Meyer who her photographs that were discovered uh, after she died even um how amazing to have that to go back as a historical, uh, a historical value point of view. So if you look at what you do as valuable that way, it's important to do it right. If we, if we don't do what we do, all we'll have of the year 2019, 1819, and a few years before are selfies of people or surveillance footage. So I think it's really important to 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 do it and to do it respectfully and to do it well. And um and to me I, I take that seriously. I hope that my photograph someday in 50 years, 100 years, people will look back and say, wow, look at those cars. Look how people were dressed at the time. How cool is that? Like we do when we look at the work of photographers from 50 years or more ago. And I, I think we, we don't look at it thinking, oh, man, that was really close to their private. There was an invasion of their privacy. Look, there are people kissing and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, they're kissing in the public place. They're for game to me. So <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. That's one of the <laughs> things that I think of as well. As as I love looking at those old photos. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandmother used to take a ton of photos, and every time we'd get together, I'd always go through her photo albums, and what would always stand out with to me were how people were dressed and yeah. and the cars on the street because it's just something that you can't see today. Exactly. Right. All all of those cars out there. So I guess kind of what I what I think about is how do you preserve those memories. Um, for the future because if you just go out there you take these photos you leave them on a hard drive we we leave this earth what happens at that yeah. point like the the photos are just gone is there anything that you do to kind of ensure that 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 the human race has a copy of your documentation
1: uh, yeah well i print um i have books i'm actually going to have a fine art book of some of my paris photographs coming out this spring um i have i have some ebooks which probably doesn't uh gonna help there's not going to help in the long run <laughs> but uh, print books are good and then printing it's really um, important to print um, and I always encourage people say print your best shot of every month so that at the end of the year you can look back and see how much you've grown in your in your art and uh, and it's great to have you know a selection of 12 photographs at the end of the year that you can actually be proud of and and maybe one or two of them will be you know, worthy to be on a wall. So it's a uh, in street photography. That's that's not as easy as it looks. So, I uh, so I think it's. But in any types of photography, I think it's important to print and have that tangible print in your hands.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. It's a kind of side question. Say that you were to go out. What would you say about is the average of how long you go out uh, with a camera and shoot?
1: Um. If I'm by myself, I'll, like I was just in Havana just for me. It was just uh, my, my me trip, my reward at the end of a busy <laughs> workshop season. So I spent four full six days, but four full days in Havana and two days of travel uh, with my camera. And I was out from morning till night. Very few breaks, you know, um, there's walking, walking, walking. And it's it's really one thing leads to another. And it's and then you have, you know elements come into uh, serendipity comes into play and then you meet someone and you walk into somebody's home and then you have this amazing light an amazing story and 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 you shoot so i i'm completely tireless when i'm in paris on my own i i'll do 15 plus miles on a day by myself um Less with students, but actually I I probably do it just as much, but I'm kind of zigzagging from (laughs) student to student. So uh, I usually double the mileage that they do, but, but you walk slower because you, you, first of all, if you walk too fast, you will, if, and if you stop, you see something and you stop, you're going to draw attention because you make that sudden stop. So walk slowly when you're in an area that's really uh, rich and, and potential. Then you walk slowly, and you don't want to miss a thing. And then, uh, and you do a lot of back and forth and circling. And it would be really interesting to actually see the the itinerary of a street photographer on any <laughs> given day <laughs> from, a, from 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 uh, outer space. Myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: From a GPS standpoint, I'm like sure you can download must that be Google uh, info. Lost. But <laughs> <laughs> I
1: call it getting lost on purpose. Yeah. Really, that's what I. That's what you need to do. I think, uh, on the streets. Just let the streets
0: surprise you. So you talked uh, there about walking slower. Mm -hmm. Um, You talked earlier about uh, learning to see photographically. And and you talk about that on your website. Um, Your website says that photographers need to shoot with more intent and make decisions before they press the shutter. And they do that by learning to see photographically. Um, What do you mean by seeing photographically? And how do we start doing that? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, first of all, don't rely on post-processing. I'm actually working on a project right now, The Artist in the Space. Uh, it's a personal project. It's kind of a way to feed my creative soul in uh, between workshops when I'm in uh, Minneapolis in the winter month. Uh, and I photograph artists in their space. And the goal is to to not... Spend more than five seconds on any of the photograph, if any pulse processing at all. And half of the photographs that I've produced so far, and I just photographed the six, number six in the series uh, yesterday, the musicians, um, half of them have absolutely no pulse processing. I shoot JPEG and I make the decision in camera before I press the shutter. And I think that's important. Even if you shoot raw, even if you can process those files to death, if that's your thing, I mean, you know, go ahead. It's (laughs) not mine. I'm happy when they come out just right. Uh, You should always aim at at cropping in camera, getting getting the the right um, the right frame, the best frame possible. So um, practice. It's harder to do on the street because obviously things are, are moving, but you can start by practicing in your house. Even just just took an obj- take an object, put it somewhere where the light is actually challenging, and then shoot it like backlit, and making all the settings work in camera, and see if you can actually make it happen without having to do any post-processing at all. And I shoot JPEG only. I've, I haven't shot a RAW file in about three or four years now. I shoot should, I should JPEG in my uh, Fujifilm camera because the JPEGs are better than I could replicate from a RAW file, so... Um, and it's street photography. You're not going to make... There's nothing you can do to a photograph to make it good if it's not good to start with. So mm-hmm. um, the raw file really would... Ha- and I print really big from a JPEG. That's another misconception. Um, and so why have all those raw files when I don't need them?
0: Right, yeah, especially if there's no intent to to, to edit them, for sure. Mm-hmm. So um, if if that's the case, if if we're shooting is what you're saying to to learn how to 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 see more photographically does that just come purely out of experience of shooting in bad light and poor conditions
1: um well it's it's actually um doing simple exercises um you know just uh pick any object or walk down the street and make something very ordinary exciting. You know, what are you going to do? Are you going to stand on that bench? Are you going to go underneath? Are you going to, how, how are you going to make that park bench exciting? You know, it's a old park bench, how to make the extraordinary look, the ultimate, the or make the ordinary look extraordinary. Um, and so using uh, using difficult lighting situation will make anything look better i mean if you if you should backlit and have some uh bright highlights and deep shadows you know create some mood and those are some of my favorite uh conditions and it's definitely more challenging than you know shooting in uh, overcast weather <laughs> when you have really even light but that to me that's kind of boring so always challenge yourself and just um I mean, one exercise that anyone can do is really to make something ordinary look extraordinary without going into post-processing and uh, look for a, a certain angle. So the more you, you frame, um, the more you work your frame, the more you work your frame, the less you'll have to do it. Uh, as you learn. So, if you, sometimes I tell my student, okay, there, there's this really cool thing. Uh, I don't know, it could be like an old shutter, all you know, lots of texture on a brick wall. Okay, make that shutter look better than it even looks on the wall. Really work it to death. Shoot at different angles, different ways, different um, apertures. Work it until you get comfortable that you know exactly when you see that that item that. Sh- Whatever it is that object, you know exactly what you need to do to make the best possible, the strongest possible photograph. But that comes with experience. So, in order to get there, you need to work it, work it, work it, and then until you get to that point where you you'll see an object or scene or whatever, and you know exactly the angle the you need to shoot it to make the strongest possible
0: photograph. So, I love that. Nice and simple, like you said, anybody can do that. Anybody can find something around their house yeah. that is. Boring. Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I do. I shoot around my house all the time. There's not a, a day that I don't see, you know, amazing light on my windowsill or the lines from the vertical blinds cast a shadow on an object. And I'll grab that shot. I'll never show it. I'll never post it. But I, I practice. Yeah. I, I I, saw and I captured it. And I had a whole series for a while called actually um, Ordinary Objects or Beautiful. And that was the whole point. Every I, I would do it every day and I would post one a week and uh, and the story behind it. And it's a fun project. There's so many things people can do that are that doesn't require any traveling at all.
0: Sure, yeah. However, I think travel is is, is one of Pretty the big cool. yeah. <laughs> one of the perks <laughs> for sure. So yeah. uh, One thing I want to know, and it's as as a wedding photographer, I make my money because couples find me. They give me money for a certain job. I do yeah. that job and then I deliver it. When it comes to street photography, I know that you do a lot of workshops and you have books, but if somebody's getting started in street photography, um, I- Can you just kind of walk me through how, I guess, uh, an average street photographer would even go about making any sort of income? You're shaking your head. You
1: can't. You really have Uh to do it for you. It's something you do for yourself. And that is so important. No matter what you should shoot for you, you shouldn't even think of an audience. And, And I shoot for myself. I teach workshops because people want to learn techniques and how to and they want to see me. Uh, shoot on the street and and learn uh but but that said i don't shoot for an audience either i shoot for me and that really is something that's so important you can't shoot for likes on social media you have to shoot for yourself if otherwise you'd always shoot you know if you shoot for the likes or for what's trendy you're not going to be happy you have to do what works for you make yourself happy and uh yeah, so I you can uh, you can teach yeah. and uh, sell prints, but even then, you know, I, I mean, I do sell prints, but I don't even it's a full time job to sell prints. You know, if you want to get your name out there, um, and I really don't have time. I do have prints available, and and they sell. You know, by collect uh, collectors buy them once in a while, and it's great. It's it's you feel pretty good when you're shipping uh, print to the other side of the world, but. Um, It's difficult. People don't usually put a photograph of a stranger on their wall unless there is a really big name attached to that print, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. So there is fine art street photography that will be a little more subtle or artsy or um, how could I say like silhouettes may sell better than. You know a, a facial expression on a stranger mm-hmm. because it's a little more um anonymous so but it's again that you're not going to make a living selling fine art prints of your street photography you know it but you know it's fun
0: do it it's for fun yourself to try if yeah.
1: <laughs> you do it for yourself i love that i think and i think every street photographer that i know is so passionate about what they do they're so addicted to it I don't think they care if they make money out of it or not. Um, it sure wasn't my goal. You know, I, I don't do anything for that. I do it. I only do things that I love doing. So um, I could still be working for clients, shooting interiors. and But I don't. I just love teaching and sharing.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love it. Uh, I think that sometimes can be, uh, you know, uh, like this lofty idea. You know what I mean? Like uh, if you shoot it, they will come, you know. Um, yeah. And I, I like the approach that you're taking as a, like don't don't shoot for anybody else. Don't shoot for an audience. Shoot for yourself. And if they like oh, it, yeah. then, then they will come essentially. But
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: When yeah. it comes to street photography, you know, as as a wedding photographer, I show up to every wedding with quite a bit of gear. You know, it's it's very heavy. <laughs> you know, I bring an assistant with me to take yeah. care of some of that gear. As a street photographer, this is one thing that I get questions about in the beginner photography podcast Facebook group. What sorts of gear, and we don't really talk a lot about gear on this podcast, as, as I'm sure you know, it's not as important as as, mm-hmm. as a lot of beginners put the weight on it. Um, but what sorts of gear are you showing up with? How, how much do you need and how little can you get away with?
1: Um, go out with your phone. I mean, honestly, um, I actually have some workshop students that will come with. A DSLR because that's what they've been shooting with, and that's all they have. And then they see the advantage of having something smaller and less conspicuous, and they will go out with uh, their phone for a day, and then they get they get the best shots because they could get a little closer, and and it's an extension of them. I mean, that's talk about limitations, you know. Although they're getting <laughs> fancier and fancier, but I shoot with one camera, when lens, it's actually a range finder type camera with a 23 millimeter lens. I can't change the lens. I, that camera is an extension of me and that's the best case scenario. I used to shoot with a DSLR. I mean, I, I started with a 5D Mark II, but then I would use, um, like a, a 40 millimeter, like the pancake lens, something that would make my camera the smallest, as, the smallest possible. And now I have the, we have the advantage of having cameras that are amazing i mean really amazing better than my I mean my X100F is better than my 5D Mark II yeah. <laughs> and uh and uh amazing cameras that are completely silent that look like old cameras that nobody's going to feel threatened by or even pay attention to and uh so we have gear that makes our life a lot easier on the streets for sure uh, but whatever you have, if it's not broken, don't fix it, right? Uh, start with whatever you have. But soon you'll realize that if you really want to get into this, lighter is going to be better because you're going to be out there for so long. You never bring extra lenses on the street. Really, the only thing you should worry about is extra batteries and uh, and maybe an extra um, card. But like for me, I shoot JPEG, so uh, 32 gig will last me several weeks. Month, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you talk there about the the lens that you bring. Uh, it's just a 23 mil lens that's attached to the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're talking Fuji. You're a Fuji photographer like myself. Yep. And that 23 millimeter lens is the equivalent to a 35 millimeter 35, on, a, on yep. a full frame sensor. Mm-hmm. And some beginners have questions about, is that too wide? Should they go with something maybe like a 50 mm-hmm. or an 85? Can you just kind of talk about... That for a moment it's
1: actually 35 millimeter um th- the 23 that I have is 35 equivalent as you said is really an an ideal street lens uh, it's not too wide but uh, you can still get some pretty cool portraits too with it um if anything I'll go wider if I go any closer and I have a 35 which is a 50 equivalent and I'm always too close mm. I have <laughs> to step back because I'm so used to my focal length and it's really there are things that you need to to decide before you press the shutter. First of all, whether it's gonna be black and white or color. Whether even if you, I make the decision in camera before I press the shutter, but that is an important creative decision that you shouldn't wait till you see the picture on in Lightroom to make. You should always make the decision before you press the shutter. Even if you shoot raw, practice making that decision. Why is that a stronger black and white? Why would it be stronger in color? And um, knowing your focal length, so that you can move quickly. I'm so familiar with that focal length that I don't have to even think. I won't have to crop because I know exactly where I need to stand to get exactly the frame the way I want the final image to be. I mean, sometimes I'll have to crop because I can't, there is something that prevents me that from getting closer. You know, if it's somebody up a window or something. <laughs> but um, but usually I do very, very little cropping. If anything, I'll straighten the verticals and that's it. So, um, so that's the advantage of working with a fixed focal length and a, the consistency in the focal length, and also in a body of work, it's nice to have that consistency. If you jump from, you know, twenty-three to thirty-five to eighty and back, it it uh, it looks it looks a little odd in a body of work or in a series. So it's good to keep that consistency. But to challenge myself, actually, I'm working on my personal project, the artist in the space, with a thirty-five millimeter. On my X-Pro2, it's a really fast lens, it's a 1.2, because sometimes I'm a, a 1.4. I'm in a really dark studio, so I needed the fastest prime. And, uh, and it's challenging for me because, again, it feels really tight. But it's also good to mix it up and, and not get stuck. You need to um, to be flexible. But for street, it's 23. And I do have a 23 for my X-Pro2, which is my water proof kit, but it's the same focal length. So it's basically mm-hmm. a different camera, but the exact same focal length. And I think that's important.
0: How often are you uh, with a rangefinder camera? I know um, when you get really comfortable with it, oftentimes you don't even need to look through the viewfinder. Now, this yeah. question isn't going to apply to a lot of the listeners, but yeah. uh, it's, it's it's interesting to me is how often are you are looking through to get the perfect composition compared to how often um, are you in, in a situation where you are Involved in that moment as well, that you just know where to point your camera and take that photo.
1: Um, actually, I never look through the viewfinder. I look. I use live view, um, and uh, because. I think if, you, and although this one doesn't have a tilt screen, I think if you look through the viewfinder all the time, you tend to shoot everything at eye level. Um, although, yes, you can go down on your knees and so forth. But I sh- I, I, never look at the viewfinder. So my, my photographs are much more dynamic that way because I can shoot lower, higher. I can have more reach too because I'm shooting wide. So just that arm's reach can get me closer to, to what I want. So um, that also helps without your... Body without physically getting closer, um, and now wait, your your question was. <laughs> I got the question. So, um, getting uh, so yeah, going back to the, the the being familiar with the focal length is is important because, and um, looking through the viewfinder. That's what the question was. Sorry, uh, I often you're right because I know that focal length so well. I don't need to look at the viewfinder half the time because I know exactly what I'm going to get uh, with, because it's, again, it's more of an extension of me. And sometime you're, you're in a situation where, for example, you're sitting across somebody really interesting in the subway in New York. Uh, you don't want them to know that you're taking a picture of them because if they notice you, whatever caught your attention in the first place is going to be gone. So then why take the picture it won't make any sense so just to really be more invisible just shooting completely blind is uh, is good did that answer your question <laughs> you muted
0: Oops. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it absolutely made sense for sure. Um, and like you said, if you're sitting across from somebody uh, on the subway, that's why it makes sense to, to know your settings. So mm-hmm. you don't have to hold up the camera do that test. Uh,
1: but that said, if you're shooting with a camera that you have to bring it to your eye, then just be completely open. Don't try to sneak the shot. Just, <laughs> just you know, I used to bring shoot,
0: the camera
1: <laughs> Yeah, I know, but I used to shoot people on the subway yeah. or in the metro in Paris with a DSLR. It's noisy. I had to bring it to my eye. I never used it on live view. And, you know, I just I just went for it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't try. Don't try to sneak the shot.
0: So uh, we mentioned black and whites there, as that's one of the big things that you should uh, make that decision before you press the shutter. Know whether or not a photo should be black and white. When I think of street photography, I think of black and white photography. Can you tell me why that is? I have no idea why that uh, is.
1: It's easier, first of all, uh, and I think it's because you think of the the, the classics. Mm. But um, black and white is a little a, a little bit easier because you have less distraction. So, um, and sometimes that timeless quality uh, of the black and white photograph. So black and white as also a mood that works well with street photography. So those are really important things to consider in your choice. But sometimes it's all about the color and and uh, and a lot of street photographers will only shoot color or only shoot black and white. I do a lot of both because um, I let the subject make that decision if the subject it's all about color why it it would make no sense to shoot it in black and white but on the other hand if uh there's this amazing subject but then there's the awful colorful distraction then of course it's going to be stronger in black and white Mm -hmm. so i make those decisions if i can't make the decision on the spot then my camera will be on film simulation bracketing where i actually have uh, uh the options but I think it's really important. It's very, very rare that you'll ever hesitate between one or the other in post processing. Um, it, it's very rare that the photograph would be equally strong in color or
0: in black and white. Very rare. Another side question: as, as a Fuji fan myself, what are your favorite um, color and black and white Fuji film simulations?
1: I only shoot act. Um, I only shoot classic chrome in color okay. only, and I have I've, I've shot a lot of color since. They came up with classic chrome because I think classic chrome has that, that timeless quality to it. Um, And it just fits my style of photography. So I shoot classic chrome and then acros and black and white. And for example, I was just in Havana and I shot more black and white than color because, and there was room for both definitely. I just I just published a, a YouTube video with a selection of 70-some of my, my photographs from Havana, and they start with color and they go into black and white. But but those were decisions that I mostly made on the spot. Sometimes I was in film simulation, so I actually had both at the end of the day. But um, sometimes the color will distract from the mood or from the expression. And, and a place like Havana is so colorful that sometimes it's just too colorful, and then uh, you for, it doesn't it doesn't translate that emotion like a black and white will. If you remove color distraction, your your viewer will stay on the subject a lot longer. If you have so much, it's so busy around your subject, the the viewer will go to the human face, and then will look all around and and not stay on the human face
0: long enough so i'm glad that you covered that that was my exact question i've never been to cuba but from every photo i've seen it seems so colorful (laughs) and uh, i'm I'm glad that you gave an explanation as to why black and white works better in a very colorful situation uh like that so this is, this is my last question. I think uh, I, I'm really excited for this episode, but I know that we've gone over our time together. So I got this one last question for you. And that is, if you had to go back to when you bought that first film camera, you moved to Minneapolis, you bought that first camera, that's it, been 20 years now. After 20 years of knowledge, what do you wish that you could go back and tell a young 1998 Valerie about photography that would help her today?
1: Um... You know, I think I think I pretty much um learned as I was doing it, you know, not not to get stuck and not to st- like I mean I even shot weddings back then, you know. You have to try everything when you don't know what you want to do. And uh And I didn't pursue them because I really did enjoy them. And and so but a lot of people stay stuck in something and they feel, oh, well, that's all I can do. But no, you're never stuck. And and um, and Ari's that's one thing, Ari's work on personal project, because at one point early on in my career of working for clients, it became a job. And uh, it took me a little while to realize why it's because. I was not working on personal projects. So I wasn't feeding my creative soul. I was only working for other people. And so it took me a little while, but I finally realized what was happening. And I started working on personal project and sharing that work, the personal work, share that work separately from your commercial work if need be, but share that work on a blog or something, but continue to work on personal project. Because at one point, I was this close to quitting photography altogether because it had become a job. I was working for clients and there is no way I was going to bring that camera out on weekends if I didn't have to. (laughs) And I didn't want to post-process any more pictures, certainly not pictures that I would do on my own time. And that's when I realized that you run into that risk whenever you turn your passion into a profession. And if you can stay a, a, a hobby photographer forever, if you can afford it, stay a hobbyist photographer. I feel like I'm back to being a hobbyist now because I, I sell my vision. I don't, I don't shoot for clients anymore. So I'm shooting a hundred percent for me and there's no better place for a photographer to be.
0: There. Wow. That is definitely uh, something that I know is going to resonate with a lot of photographers as now is definitely a time where a lot of people feel like they have, like if they help, if they're holding a camera, they have to go into business for themselves. A lot of <laughs> yeah. people don't want to do that. And no, I'm glad that no, you uh, okay. shared that. I'm glad that you shared that perspective for sure professional photographer doesn't mean they do better than the hobbyist photographer. Very true. I look at some of the uh, members in the beginner photography podcast, Facebook group and think like, what am I doing? Like, look at these photos. They're they're great. (laughs) Well, Valerie, again, thank you so much for your time coming on the show. Before I let you go, can you let the listeners know where they can find you online and keep up with you?
1: Uh, well, everything is under Valérie Jardin, V-A-L-E-R-I-E-J-A-R-D-I-N, and I rank pretty high on Google, so a search will probably, you'll have everything, but everything is on my website, valerijardin.com, whether it's the, the books, the webinars, the podcast, hit the streets on on um, iTunes, and uh, and everything else I do, so the blogs and so forth.
0: That was so much fun. That was so exciting. It was it was truly a pleasure to talk to somebody who has been a working street photographer for as many years as Valerie has. And Valerie, if you're listening right now, I can't thank you enough for coming on um, on you know the podcast and sharing with the listeners a wealth of information that you've learned over the 20 years that you have spent shooting. So Valerie, again, thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on the podcast and, and sharing everything that you did. If you're listening and you want to get more into street photography, Please check out her podcast. Check out Valerie's podcast, "Hit the Streets." It is a um, it is a podcast for street photographers. You know, where where you're going to tackle more of the in depth things, uh, and and it's really important if you do want to get into street photography. One of my biggest takeaways today was, you you know, uh, wrongfully so. When you think about street photography, you think that it's more. Um, um, okay, let me let me reframe this. <laughs> When I show up to a wedding, I know that I am working, I have a job, and I am doing something specific that day for somebody, and I put, a, I put a serious weight into that, right? So I do my job to the best of my abilities, and I try to capture as much as humanly possible, but when I'm at home, when I'm with the kids, and you know, I see something interesting happen, I think, like, oh wow, this is like a really good moment, I'll just take a picture like with my phone or something like that, and I just don't take it as seriously as I do my, my wedding photography, because it feels like work, right? Valerie takes that same um, pride, she takes that same work ethic to the streets if, no, I think she I think she has a much stronger work ethic than I do at weddings while she's on the street Uh, At a wedding, like I'll walk around all day, but I don't think that I walk 10 miles. And if I did, man, my feet would be killing me. And she does this stuff for fun. You know what I mean? Because she made it important to her to document everyday life. And that is, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. And I commend her for that. So I really want to know what your biggest takeaway was. Come into the Beginner Photography Podcast Facebook group and share what it was. I would love to hear it. And I'm sure Valerie would as well. So remember, if this episode got you excited, got you fired up, and you really want to get out there uh, on the streets, go out there, start shooting, you know, start shooting. But if you come back and feel like you still need a little more time behind the camera before you can proficiently go out there on the streets, highly encourage you to check out the Beginner Photography Podcast, Um two-day photography bootcamp, which you can find over on the website at beginnerphotographypodcast.com. You can scroll all the way to the bottom of the page. There's a big sign-up form, and I will send it to you right away. So that is it for this week's episode. Until next week, get out there, keep shooting, maybe hit the streets, all right? <laughs> Focus on yourself, and I will see you next time. Love you all.
1: If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. And continue the conversation with Raymond and other listeners of the podcast by joining the Beginner Photography Podcast Facebook group today. Thank you. We'll see you again next week.